Alrighty, let's get ready for our uh, next section by Brother Robbie Bennett, who's told us that he would give us some exhortation on the feeding of the five thousand, which is the fifth or the fourth sign, which John has recorded. And let's turn that up and read the account, and that's in chapter six, so we can have all this fresh in our mind as he discusses this to us, the first 14 verses. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed Him because they saw His miracles, which He did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up to a mountain, and there He sat with His disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus... then uh, then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company coming to him. He saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? This he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that even one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down in number, about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and he gave thanks, and he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise the fishes as much as they would. And when they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets and the fragments of the fish of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come to the world. Let's give our attention to Brother Robbie. Morning. I want to thank the brethren of Orlando for inviting my family and myself here. We sure enjoy visiting and being with our brethren here in Orlando and brethren that travel here as well. So now we've made it to the fourth sign this morning. So far we've considered three of the signs first being the water and the wine, teaching us that there is joy in the service of the Lord, incidental to accepting the invitation to His marriage. We've heard about the ruler's or the nobleman's son who was cured, showing us that Christ alone can cure, can cure those who are spiritually dying. We've just heard about the impotent man who was made strong, revealing to us that Christ will strengthen those who recognize their helplessness and their need for Him, and then they can walk firmly before Him. And as we think about all the signs, all eight together, we constantly have to keep in our minds the purpose that they remember their purpose, and that is that they were there to draw attention to the power that Christ possessed and to illustrate, to illustrate or bring to the minds of those that saw them the teachings which he wanted them to understand. So now we have an account where Jesus, with the help of his disciples, provides a meal 
to a host of 5,000 people. So this sign demonstrates that the ability of the Lord is to nourish His followers with spiritual food sufficient for their needs. This is a food that cannot be purchased. It never ceases, nor it does not ever fail. Something which lasts forever. We can see, as with the previous three signs, that our speakers have brought out how they apply to natural Israel as well as to spiritual Israel. On this application, this teaches us for the natural Israelite that only the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, could provide Israel with the spiritual food which would enable Yahweh to redeem them. And of course, really, the spiritual lesson for spiritual Israel is very similar. That spiritual Israel continues to partake of the spirit word which the Lord Jesus has provided. This will sustain us into life eternal. Now, it's almost hard to look at one sign individually as you study these. You have to almost compare them with one another. And this one's interesting when we look at the first three in comparison to the fourth. The first, remember, we had a marriage or an invitation to a marriage, with invitation being the key word that was brought out last night. The second, time, the second sign, we know, noted that one was elevated, brought forth from the bed of death, that is brought into a, light, into a life of light through the promises that were given by Yahweh and the association that they have through His Son. Through his son. This third sign brought to fact that we can be strengthened, that man has to be strengthened if we walk firmly once we place our faith and trust in our Redeemer or in our Christ, our Anointed One. But of course, the fourth sign then brings even further direction to us that we must continue to feed upon this Spirit Word, this sustaining food, in order to remain nourished and prepared for our Lord's coming. Now, this fourth sign is unique from all the others. It's unique in the fact that it's recorded in all four Gospels, which is unlike the other, other seven. And when we think about this, it might have some, a good application. Remember, you know, this was written or it was performed before men a multitude of 5,000, but yet now we have it recorded by four Gospels. And remember, each Gospel was written to a particular group of individuals. Matthew, of course, was written for the Jews. Mark's recordings were written for the Romans. Luke's recordings for the Greeks. And, of course, John's was written for the believers, which shows then that the lessons that can be derived from this fourth sign is beneficial for all parties, not just the natural Jew or the spiritual Jew, all men. Now, the feeding of this 5,000 occurred after some very notable events in the life of Christ and His apostles. We know that first the apostles had been sent out to preach repentance and they were given the power to heal using the spirit gifts that Yahweh gave them. Turn over to Matthew 10, verses 7 and 8. We see the direction they were given. 
is as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely you have received, freely give. So that's one thing that these apostles were, should have been aware of when they faced this, you might say, trial or this situation. But secondly, also going through their minds possibly at the time, or especially Christ's mind, was at this period, John the Baptist had just been slain by the wicked Herod and Herodias, which is recorded in Matthew 14. In this brutal event, we believe that Jesus likely saw the foreshadowing of his own death. But not only his own death, but he probably saw within it the death or the persecution that his own apostles, his disciples, would face as they continued their witnessing of his name throughout the land. So upon the subject of Jesus' death, the beginning of this fourth sign causes us quickly to consider the timing of Jesus' death. If you notice in John 6, verse 4, it says, And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. And we know that Jesus' ministry was a period of three and a half years. And we know that his death would occur at the time of Passover, particularly the fourth Passover after his ministry began. So what we have here is then basically his death is within practically a year away from this event. So having been upon his mind the death of his cousin John the Baptist, his own death, possibly the death or the persecutions that his apostles and his disciples would face, he comes to this event. But before this event, we notice that in verses 1 through 3, verse 3 that says, And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. If we compare this to the record in Luke, Luke 9, verse 10, we see there that the apostles, when they, were, when they returned, told him that they, all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But here we have you know, Christ is wanting to go set to a separate place with his apostles. But Stadia here in Luke 9 indicates it's a uh, of a Greek or excuse me a Chaldee origin indicating a fishing house. It was a place in Palestine or specifically a location in Galilee. But Stadia was also the home of Philip, Andrew, and Peter, according to John 1 and John chapter 12. And perhaps it was also the the home of James and John. This being the home, home place of both Philip and Andrew may figure into the reason why Jesus proposed that Philip help determine a means for feeding this hungry crowd. If you read John 1, verse 43, we see the proof of this. The, fo- the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and find Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip, Philip was of Bethsaida, 
the city of Andrew, and Peter. It's also fitting that at least Peter and Andrew would originate, originate from the city of Bethsaida as well. For we read of the selection of these men after the John the Baptist was imprisoned. Let's look at Mark chapter 1. Mark 1, verses 14 through 18. We read, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Now as he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. So since the Scriptures denote that Philip and Andrew were to be followers of Christ and fishers of men, then it seems appropriate that Jesus looks to Philip for the means of feeding this hungry crowd while near his hometown in Bethsaida. This was his opportunity to be a fisher of men. So also, as we noted previously, Christ had already provided them with the command to preach, to heal, the sick, cleanse the lepers, and raise the dead, cast out devils, and as he had told them, freely as you have received, freely give. Was this then a challenge to Philip and the other disciples to see how they would follow his previous command? So back in John chapter 6, verse 2, we see that a great multitude followed. And this group of men followed, or this group of people followed because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. In this situation, Christ forgets his own needs, his own needs or his own desire for maybe rest from walking long ways, working with the people. Now we see that he's filled with great compassion for the great multitude of people that came seeking him. We're told in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, when he looked out amongst this group of people, he noticed that they were like a sh- they were sheep without a shepherd. And of course, we know he was their good shepherd. And as the brethren have already introduced to us this morning, that you know, we see the type of situation that he was in with the people. You know, some looked to put him to death because of the things which he taught. None of many misunderstood the law and the prophets. So these people, these Jews, natural Israel, definitely were sheep without a shepherd. We might also consider another context in which to review what John has recorded to us here in verse 2. Does not the multitudinous Christ or the redeemed follow Jesus because they have witnessed the miracles or signs of Christ which have been a cornerstone on which they base their faith. The disease that he healed, were they not of Israel? The second and third sign provided lessons of healing and resuscitation to natural and spiritual Israel through Christ. So this statement that a great multitude had followed him because they saw his miracles could be considered in the ultimate sense, describing how the miracles of Christ contributed to the calling out 
of the multitudinous Christ as they recognize how the works of Yahweh have been performed upon the diseased nation of Israel throughout time with the ultimate goal of their restoration and complete healing in his kingdom. So setting aside his own needs, he began to teach them, speaking to them of the kingdom of God and healing the sick. But later we read that many were taking advantage of this situation. They were not looking to him for the spiritual effects, but rather for their physical needs, looking to satisfy their own personal personal benefits. If you look at John 6, verses 26 and 27, we read this. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. So really this is an exhortation for us that we not fall into this similar mindset, only to seek the material benefits of what Yahweh has provided in this life. We know from history that the Jews that witnessed the teachings and miracles of Christ remained a stubborn people. They many times despised the privileges that were granted to them. It is as if they had become so used to God's teachings that they had begun to take it for granted, accepting it as mere formalized instruction in an academic sense, but not as a practical way of life. They did not realize that they had to humbly accept God's Word by putting into daily practice the precepts that it taught. Therefore, the gospel message was ultimately delivered unto the Gentiles, a people who were teeming with enthusiasm to hear about the riches of Christ, which are well represented by the waters of Galilee, in which this next miracle of Jesus was to occur, near which this miracle was to occur. We note on this occasion that the body of the water that was called both the Sea of Galilee, signifying or maybe representing the Jews, but it was in this account called by its Gentile or Roman identity, the Sea of Tiberias, possibly representing the aspect of the Gentiles that would eventually partake of the spiritual food which Christ would provide. So, again, in verse 3, we note that Jesus went up into this mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Here he gathers together his disciples into a secluded place apart from the natural Israelites apart from the Gentiles that were following them. We also note in this same chapter, verse 15, at the end of the sign, or at the beginning basically of the fifth sign, that Jesus again escapes into a mountain, but this time by himself, due to the fact that the men were attempting to place him in a position of authority that was not yet appropriate for him. In verse 15, we could consider that this removal into a mountain typified Christ's ascension into heaven. But then we ask, where does that leave us with the ascension into the mountain with his disciples in the beginning of the fourth sign? 
I would suggest that we turn to Genesis chapter 1 for a possible clue. One way to look at this fourth sign recorded by John is to compare it to the events which transpired upon the fourth day of creation. So we know about the fourth day of creation as recorded on in Genesis 1, starting at verse 14. Here we read, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made, or He appointed, two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. With our knowledge of the allegory taught in the creation week, we understand that upon the fourth day, the earth was completely dispelled from darkness. That is, on the fourth day, the earth came under the complete influence of the direct rays of the sun and then of the moon and of the stars. This was fulfilled in the appearance of Christ in the fourth millennium before mankind. It was a time when the governmental concept of the kingdom was introduced the ecclesia, the aspect of the ecclesia was formed through the work of the apostles, and the spirit and the spiritual seed of Abraham was well defined to the people through faith in Christ. Therefore, when we think about Jesus sitting in this mountain with his disciples, as recorded in John six, verse three, we have an allusion to the principles which were manifested to us in this fourth day of creation. That is, we propose that Christ gathers to him his disciples in a secluded place, elevated above the land and people around, as the sun would sit with the moon and the stars in the heavenly, in the heavenly orb, to instruct his disciples upon the principles regarding the future kingdom and their upcoming work to gather and instruct those who are being called by Yahweh. We continue through, we notice that verse 4, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. Now, we've already commented on the fact that this verse sets the timing of the sign in relation to Christ's ministry. But in context with what verse 3 just taught and symbol to the appearance of Christ, this verse continues with the same theme. Since the days of Moses, the Passover feast had typified the coming of the one through whom Yahweh would provide redemption for the human race. This redemption can only be achieved by feeding upon the nourishment which is provided by Yahweh through His Son. This was in type accomplished by those that participated in the Passover meal by partaking of the roasted lamb that had been sacrificed for the family. But in this instance, we notice that John described the Passover, though, as a feast of the Jews. Now, we know that the feast was really something that was prescribed by Yahweh. But by this time in history, 
The Jews had so corrupted the original teaching concerning the Passover that it was more appropriate to describe it as their feast rather than Yahweh's feast. This expression also draws attention to the exclusiveness which the Jews associated with their feasts and their religious practices. Thinking then that the ideal that Yahweh would invite the Gentiles to participate in the promises of Abraham was a foreign concept to most Jews at that time. Even one that, even one that some of the apostles, it was even a concept that the apostles had difficulty with. Yet all one had to do was to reflect upon the promises which was given to Abraham, where Yahweh confirmed to him that in thee all nations of the earth shall be blessed. So again, another illusion within this sign, like the identification of the Sea of Galilee as the Sea of Tiberias, that Yahweh's plan of salvation was to be, was to be extended to the Gentiles that had ears to hear. To continue through, we notice Verses 5 through 7, the great company comes to him. The apostles, or he asks his apostles, uh, whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And he specifically addressed this to Philip. And we notice in verse 7 that Philip answered and said, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. Here we have a test given to Philip. Christ provides a test to him about feeding of this multitude. Now, Philip, as we noted earlier, was a Galilean from Bethsaida. And his Gentile name means warrior or lover of horses. But his name was not really descriptive of his character because when we read of Philip, we find that he really had a timid, and a retiring disposition. But somehow, for some reason, Philip had a connection with the Gentiles. So we note that it's significant that later on, when the Gentiles desired to meet Jesus, they sought to do so through this man, Philip. Look at John chapter 12, verse 20 and 21. There were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. So Jesus may have chosen Philip in this situation of the feeding of the 5,000 to see the service of self-sacrifice because he knew the disposition and character that Philip would display. Jesus knew that in order for Philip to be a fisher of men, one would have to overcome any timid or retiring disposition he may have and become a leader and boldly address this group of people and the nations that he would be sent to. So we know that this, this group of people desired food. They were hungry. And Philip was observant to the people's needs. But, of course, he quickly determined in his head that a great price was needed to satisfy their, this massive group. 
On a fisherman's wages, such resources were not readily at hand, and to feed such a group on short demand would most likely be beyond their power to supply. Yet the type of bread that Jesus wanted to offer the people, we know, was, was not that which could be purchased with money. So this takes, us, our, takes our minds surely to Isaiah 55, 1. Think about the type of bread that we all should thirst or seek after. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3, we read, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. So the lesson to be taught to the disciples and this great multitude was that mankind must listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd and then feed upon Yahweh's words. Now, this was also taught by Christ in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 6. Matthew 5, 6 states, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I think we can also derive a lesson from the financial aspect in this sign. Philip's words were 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them. It served as a reminder that the needs of the people could only be met by payment of great price. And, of course, the great price really to be paid was not a financial sum, but rather the life of the Son of God. We're told in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In 1 Corinthians 7.23, we are told, You are bought with a price. Be ye not the servants of men. Last one in 1 Peter verse 1, chapter 1, verse 18, we are told, For as much as ye know that you are redeemed without corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. That was the great price to be paid. So, Thinking then upon this great price paid, we would then consider the five loaves and the two fishes as symbols which pointed forward to the death, the resurrection, and the immortality of Christ performed in part for all those that would be followers of Him and His Father's will. So in John 6, 8-9, through 9, we note that there was a young boy there, a lad, which had five barley loaves and two small fishes. So we ask, how would these two symbols, two, two items, barley loaves and fishes, bring to our minds 
the death, resurrection, and immortality of Christ. So first we consider the loaves of bread. After the miracle, later in this chapter, Jesus provides a discourse to those who were continuing to follow Him. He exhorted them on what was the true bread. Look at John 6.35. It says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Skip to verse 58. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. So those of us that have a mathematical mind might look at it in this kind of application. Jesus' teachings equals the bread of life. And then consumption of the bread of life equals eternal life. Pretty simple. Jesus' teachings equals the bread of life, and the consumption of this bread of life equals eternal life. Now, the bread used in this circumstance of the loaves provided in the sign was made from barley. Now, barley is provided from the lowliest variety of flour, but it was the barley harvest which provided the first fruits offering in Leviticus 23. We know then that it typified the resurrection of Christ as the first fruits of those which are raised from the dead. Now, we know that the Passover, remember we're told this occurred near the Passover. The Passover came too early in the year for wheat to be sufficiently ripe for harvesting. So the first of the corn harvest was always the barley, an earlier ripening grain. So in antitype, Christ, like the barley, was the first fruits of a greater and a more far-reaching harvest. So we have also the number five associated with this. Five, we know, is the biblical number to represent grace and restoration. So then we have the lesson that by feeding upon the true bread of heaven, the teachings of Christ, one is able to have Yahweh's grace upon him and the spirit of restoration would be granted to those who fed upon him. And the fact that there were two fishes also draws attention to the twofold origin of those we ultimately ultimately redeemed, for they shall be drawn from the from Israel and the Gentiles, these two great hosts of people, these men that are found in the sea of nations. We notice then that Jesus in Quat tells them, make the men sit down and, if there were, and we found that now there was much grass in the place, and the men sat down in the number of about 5,000. In the record of Mark, we have more information provided as to how Jesus requested that these people sit down. And in Mark, it's more specific. Look at Mark 6, verse 39 and 40. There it says, He commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass, and they sat down in ranks by hundreds and fifties. The word companies in the Greek is symposium, which means basically a room of guests or a great company. 
From this, then, it is implied that the group of people that they were to receive for a substantial meal was not a small snack. It wasn't just a quick, um, brief meal, hors d'oeuvres, as you may say, for those that are sophisticated. This situation was a personal meal similar to that which Christ shared with his brethren before his death, that last supper. They sat, as does the Ecclesia of Yahweh does, readily and humbly willing to receive the Spirit Word and to feed upon this meat that Christ would provide. They were to consume it intently. We compare this to Psalm 34.8 where it says, O taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in Him. It also kind of makes me think about what we are told in Hebrews 5 verses 12 through 14. I'll just read verse 14. It says, But solid food belongs to those who are full of age, that is, those who are by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That was the intent for feeding here. And we notice then that there was much green grass in this place as recorded by Mark, chapter 6, verse 10. Green grass is indicative of fruitful growth or that which is well-nourished, another allusion to the benefits of feeding upon the words of Christ. We note then in verse 11 that the disciples were to distribute this food. Additional proof to those that were to be witnessing of Christ that He was the Son of God. He instructs His disciples to distribute the food to the people, providing the lesson to them that even after His departure, it will be their responsibility to tend to the sheepfold that is being invited into Yahweh's kingdom. All who gathered before the Lord at this time received exactly the same food, whether they were men, women, young or old. And such is the gospel message which is taught by Christ. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and therefore only one message which carries the power of salvation. All must eat of this one faith if they wish to be redeemed. The Lord will provide us with spiritual food which is able to sustain us unto eternal life, but we must eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood in a spiritual sense. And at the end of the event, we know that he had his disciples gather up the fragments that remained, that nothing be lost. Therefore, they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments. Though the apostles gave the multitude their own food, it did not cause a loss to any one of them. In fact, they learned the lesson that in ministering to others, they gain more for themselves. After all were full, and after the collection of all the remnants of the five loaves and the two fishes, now they had twelve baskets full of fragments. So we compare this to ourselves. Though it may seem to us now that much that we do for Christ's sake seems difficult or maybe wasted, really it's not done. That's not the case if it is done or performed in truth and in faith.
The disciples had a difficult time coming to a full understanding of the miracle that they had just witnessed and even had helped participate in. And we have this recorded for us in Mark 8 and in Matthew 16, where later on Christ's ministry, he becomes frustrated with his disciples for their lack of faith and trust in Yahweh to provide for the necessities of this life. Let's go to Mark 8 and look at this example. Mark 8, verse 14. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. Skip to verse 17. And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye, because ye have no bread? Perceive ye, perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, see ye not? And having ears, hear ye not. And do you not remember, when I break the five loaves among the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said unto him, Twelve. And when the seven among the four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, Seven. And he said unto them, How is it that ye do not understand? So in this event, Christ posed seven questions to his disciples. The last was, he inquired, how is it that ye do not understand? The word translated understand means to comprehend a matter by putting things together and learning from them. So if you consider each of these questions one at a time as we go start at verse 17, he says, perceive ye not yet? Well, do we perceive the goodness of God when we experience events in our life, when we experience events that seem like Yahweh has worked within our lives, neither understand, as said in verse 17, do we learn by the experiences to place trust in Yahweh in our daily lives? Have you, you, yet, have you your heart yet hardened? Do we sometimes harden our hearts in moments of trial? and forget the benefits of what Yahweh has provided unto us? Having eyes, see ye not. Can we not open our eyes to see the hand of God revealed for our good? Having ears, hear ye not. Can we not daily open our ears to His voice, the voice of His Word as recorded? He asked them, Do ye not remember... Can we not reflect back upon the many circumstances that Yahweh has guided us through, the provisions which He's offered each one of us, primarily the precious knowledge of His truth and the plan of His salvation? And finally He says, How is it that ye do not understand? Can we not learn by putting all the things together to appreciate better the will and purpose of our Heavenly Father? and not be deterred by temporary and fleshly desires. So in summary, we would say, we should not be over-concerned about the material needs of this life while engaged in Yahweh's service. Keeping in mind that there will be ample spiritual food for all who desire to be filled with the teaching of Christ. And no food 
None of his teachings shall be wasted. The bountiful goodness of a loving Heavenly Father is not to be treated lightly or should it be squandered thoughtlessly away. Yahweh, though generous to all who seek Him, guards His Word just as the flaming sword kept the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. A sword which had two edges, one for instruction, the other edge for destruction. The last thing that was said in the sign was, those men, then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth that the prophet should come, that the prophet should come into the world. Those that witnessed this great miracle were able to reflect upon the spirit word to which they were very familiar. In Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, it says, "The Lord Yahweh thy Elohim will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren." Like unto me, unto him shall ye hearken. We find that those who feed upon the words of Christ are better able to recognize their Messiah and their and the anointed of Yahweh. And since verse 14 calls us to reflect upon Moses and how he stood as a type of Christ, we cannot help but to reflect upon how much similarity there is between this provision of the bread to the multitude of people and the bread which was provided as manna to the Israelites which followed Moses out of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 8.3, we are told, And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that a man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of Yahweh doth man live. How much this can be compared or contrasted with what Christ said in John 6, verses 48 through 51. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall eat, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give, that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. When we think back upon the manna given to the Israelites, that bread only sustained them for a period of time. But this bread which Christ offers and that bread which was typified by those loaves and fishes that these men fed upon, something that provides eternal life. So, we have here then the lesson. The Lord can nourish His followers with spiritual food sufficient for their needs, a food which cannot be bought with price, nor does it ever fail, and last forever. And if we continue to partake of this food which He has provided, we shall be sustained unto eternal life.